All right, I'll, I'll open in prayer and we'll, we'll dive in. <clears throat> Lord God, just pray your spirit would uh, take the texts and lift it and move it with your spirit into our hearts and minds and, and we would understand more about you and, and we long to spend all eternity learning more about you and help us to sort of peer through the shadows and, and uh, you'll have a better understanding of you and we, we thank you for your love to us in Christ's name, amen. All right, so, so this is a class on the gospel according to the prophets. So what we're doing is going through some major elements in the Old Testament that foreshadow the elements of Christ and the cross in the New Testament. And most of this stuff we use because the New Testament authors do exactly the same thing. So, I'm, so a lot of the stuff we talk about are... Um, Borrowing from the New Testament authors how they use the Old Testament. Today we're going to look particularly at the Gospel of Matthew, but we're going to kind of we need to do a little bit of a backstory with with the Book of Exodus. Um, and I think we'll probably be three weeks in Exodus. I thought about trying to cram it all into one, but I was like, you know, there's just too much good stuff. So we'll maybe hang out a little bit longer in in Exodus. So. So this is Jesus in John chapter five, and he's. You know, argue, this is a section where he's arguing with the Pharisees. This is, a, you know, and and they don't understand who he is. They don't they don't understand they're they're face to face with the Son of God. But yet, he's he's talking to them because they're they're rooted in the Scripture. They've grown up immersed in Scripture. You know, they learned the alphabet probably from the Hebrew alphabet probably because they learned Psalm 119. They were a kid, you know. I learned the alphabet from Dr. Seuss. They learned it from Psalm 119, right? That's probably the kind of uh, <coughs> thinking that these people had. So they've searched the scriptures well. And then Jesus is chides them. He says, "You examine the scriptures," and, and we're talking about the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the, the Torah, and the prophets and the writings. You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But he says, it is those very scriptures that testify about me. It's a very fascinating system. So Jesus is saying, these are the scriptures that speak of me. Right? Last week we looked at the very introduction of Matthew, where it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Right? You can't even get through the first verse of the New Testament before you're already steeped in Old Testament Stuff, right? So people that just have a New Testament, they, they would read that verse and they wouldn't, who, who's David? Who's Abraham? Is that significant? Well, it is significant, right? And, and Matthew, who's the most Jewish of our gospel writers, is very, at, makes a very adamant case that Jesus fully qualifies as Messiah. And we'll talk a little bit about that as, as we go along. So, but we also looked at another verse where Paul argues about the mystery of the church in, in 1 Corinthians 2. And he makes this comment about, these are, this is a mystery that's now revealed, and he makes this comment, he says, if the powers, if, if, if the powers that, that be, I'm loosely paraphrasing, if they understood this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's like, so, so on one hand, the plan has been laid out in the Old Testament, but in another way, it's been sort of encrypted. Right? There, so there's, there's things in the way the Old Testament writes things out. It's not, it's just explicitly laid out. 
but it's sort of encrypted and using, uh, you know, there's explicit prophecy like where Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem according to Micah 5.2, but there's a lot of what we call typology. And we talked about this idea, the Hebrew author would say there's shadows and reality. So there are events, historical events, or things that exist like the tabernacle or the bronze serpent on the pole. These are things that, you know, you read those, you don't think much about them, but the New Testament authors say these things are painting a picture, kind of a shadowy picture of something that happened in the future whose reality we find is in Christ. And once you start seeing these, you begin to see them all over the place. In fact, sometimes it's dangerous. You might see them in more places than they really are. But, but um, And I might suggest a few that, you know, that I think that maybe, maybe I'm taking it too far. What happened? Did we lose our connection? Oh, hey, there we go. Excellent. All right. Excellent. Back to where... This happens to me often when I'm teaching in some strange places, and I always have to say... Yeah. (laughs) There's something to be said about just having paper and a pencil, right? All right. So, So... so like I said, we'll spend about three weeks in Exodus. And today I'm, I'm going to sort of, we're going to do sort of an overview of Exodus. And the idea is, like, if you're in a maze, a cornfield maze, and you're walking through the maze, you may not kind of understand the picture that's been cut out in the maze. But if you're flying over in an airplane, you'll see, ah, right, that's, you know, I've you'll be maybe a message, right, for Happy Halloween or something. I don't know. In the, in you, you don't see it until you're flying over in an airplane that there's this message. And, and so we're going to kind of take this bird's eye view of Exodus because this is what I believe the gospel writers do. They sort of have, they, 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 they know the story <laughs> in the large and they use that um, repeatedly. And once you begin to see it, you'll understand what I mean. Um, so studying the Bible verse by verse is wonderful. But sometimes if you read your Bible just verse by verse, you may miss some of the bigger pictures. And so, th- so I want to talk sort of about some of the bigger pictures today. And one of those is going to be the Passover on the cross. I said, you know what, I'm just going to leave that for next week. Because that's, that's where things get really obvious when we get to the Passover lamb. And, and, and so we'll do that next week. And then as time progresses, we're, you know, in Exodus you get the beginning of this idea that's called the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And then how Jesus is going to be the mediator of a better covenant. So, so this is probably something we'll introduce in the third week. And then we'll talk, we'll talk a lot about the new covenant as we get into later, you know, we get into Jeremiah and get into Isaiah and onward. So anyway, so that's kind of the plan. So again, so, last, so we've, we spent last week looking particularly at Genesis 22 and the story with Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice on Moriah and how this painted a picture of something that was going to provide it in the future. Right? We talked about that in detail. And, we've, and we, we mentioned the idea of this promise that God gave to Abraham. So there's these major covenants you find in the Old Testament. And then the next major covenant, which we'll breach today a little bit, is this idea of this old covenant, which is another... I mean, there's so many things happening in the book of Exodus. But this is... So if you think in terms of covenants, we'll get to the... When we get to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, which is sort of the heart of this, we'll, we'll, we'll mention that a little bit, right? And then, and then later we'll talk about this promise that's made to David. And then, and then we're going to spend a while talking about this new and better covenant. New covenant as opposed to this old covenant. And you know, the book of Hebrews... Um, you know, largely is about why Jesus is better than Moses, right? Jesus is the son, right? And, you know, so 
we'll, we'll be spending some time. So, this, so it's important to have a backdrop. If you read the book of Hebrews, if you haven't, don't understand this kind of big breakdown, it doesn't make as much sense. So, so in Exodus, there's a lot that's happening in, in the book of Exodus. And I just, just I thought, well, I'll just kind of do a crude outline. So one thing that's sort of interesting is Moses' life, it says in, <laughs> that he lived 120 years, that he lived a full life. So, and which is interesting because his life sort of breaks up into three 40-period years, if you read these things. Um, I'm going to say something. You can take this with a grain of salt. It might be heretical in some circles, but sometimes maybe these numbers are not literal. That maybe he didn't really live 120 years, but there's something else being messaged here about being 120 years. As you know, as you know um, Moses wrote Psalm 90. He says if, if you know, most people live... You know, he's talking about how brief our life is compared to God's life. And he talks about if a person lives 70 years, but if he's strong, he can live 80 years. Right? That's so at 80 years, you've lived a good, strong life. And you think, well, wait a minute, Moses, you lived 120 years, right? Or you look at Abraham, you're 175 years, what's going on? So I'm going to suggest there may be something else being messaged in these numbers. Particularly, you see this in, in the Gospel of Matthew, where you have the 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Well, you look, there's stuff that's missing and been swapped around a little bit. That's because Matthew's making a point. Right? There's this idea of he- Hebrew gematria, where, you, where numbers are significant, and David happens to be the number 14, going back to the acrostic of Psalm 119. And so Matthew's making a point, not very subtly, that Jesus is the son of David. He's the rightful Messiah. And if you look on the last one, if you count them, there's only 13. There's not even 14. So there's a suggestion that when Jesus comes, because that last 14 is from the exile. And it's like, maybe they're still in exile by the time Jesus comes. And Jesus is the one that's going to be the final one that brings them out of the exile. So, so these numbers are often communicating something that we might not um, think. And so I think this is quite likely with with the life of Moses and this idea of 120 years, if you look at the ages of all the patriarchs, numerically they're kind of weird. They're all either divisible by five or they're divisible by five if you subtract seven first. And like, what's going on? All of them follow those, one of those two rules with no exception. It's kind of interesting. There's something going on. But, so, but I kind of broke these up in these 40 years. And if you know this kind of the story, you open with 70 people. At the end of Genesis, 70 people um, go into Egypt the patriarchs go into Egypt and then you have the birth of a nation and by the time you get to Genesis 12, you have this large 600,000 fighting men that come out at that time. So you have this birth of this nation and this all happened. We know the story of Joseph, how they ended up in Egypt due to the famine and what what is going on there. you know, some people, some scholars will say they, they probably after they were there after the famine, they should have went back to Canaan, but they didn't. But there they are, and then they become too numerous. The, the old pharaohs that knew Joseph have for long forgotten him. They become enslaved, and they're all under um, hard labor, building all the various uh, storehouses and whatnot for Ramses and, and the various pharaohs of that time, and. <clears throat> It's during this time you have the birth of Moses. And you know the story. They're trying to drown the infants. They're trying to kill the infants because they're becoming too powerful. All the male infants, they're trying to drown them. And Moses is placed, you guys know the story, he's placed in there and he's plucked out of water and, and he's raised as this, by one of the daughters of Pharaoh. And um, he's raised up. And that's sort of how things are introduced. 
And you're going to see that there's a little bit, of, there's a lot of symmetry in these, like the drowning of the infants is going to be later on symmetric with the drowning of the Egyptian army in, in the, uh, in when they part, when the Red Sea. There's all, you know, there's this blood in the Nile, then you're going to have the destruction of the drowning in the Red Sea. There's this recompense that God has. And if we get to Matthew, we have a similar thing that's going to be happening is you have the murder of the, of the innocents by Herod. Right? And you have this, some of the same elements are happening when you, when you open the Gospels. Right? And then, as you know, his 40 years, he, he murders one of the Egyptians and he flees and he spends another 40 years in exile out in, out in Midian. And this is where, by the time you get to Exodus 3, you have Moses, the story of Moses and the burning bush. And he is called to go back to free his people. And this is where God's name is revealed, right? Where he's the, the great I am. Moses is telling them, um, if I go back, how are they going to, who can I tell, tell, told me to go back? What, what is his name? And that's where he says, I am that I am. And then this is connected with what we call the tetragrammaton, the Yahweh, this four-letter consonant that's going to be God's name in our English Bibles is always going to be lowercase caps. And that's going to be the divine name. And that's going to be his name. And it says in Genesis 6, I didn't reveal this name to Abraham, but I revealed it to you. <clears throat> so, so at that point, Moses returns to Egypt. So now he's 80 years old when he first confronts Pharaoh. He's 80 years old at this point. And this, of course, we get into the ten plagues, which we're going to talk about. And this is going to be... Um, Broadly, a judgment on the gods of Egypt. And we'll talk a little about that in some detail. The idea that the Egyptians worship this pantheon of gods, but they are no match for the, for the true God. And that's going to be one of his defining elements. When God brings out the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. So he's forever going to be sort of known as the God who, who brought them out of Egypt through these plagues. That's going to be... Over and over again, even when you get into the Psalms talking to the Exodus, that's how God's going to be identified as that one who defeated the gods of Egypt. In fact, when we get to Exodus 12, that's, it explicitly says this is judgment on the gods. And when we get to the New Testament picture, we're going to see that that was the big defeat for Jesus defeated the gods of this world on the cross. And we'll, you know, we'll talk about that. And then, of course, the big one, which we'll put up for next week, is at the 10th plague, and then you have the past Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is obviously communicating something about Jesus, and we know that it's no accident that Jesus was crucified on Passover and was the Passover lamb. So we'll, 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 we'll hold that off for next week. Then we, get, then we get, they come out of Egypt, they plunder the Egyptians, all their gold, and they, they go off, and, and then the, you have the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of the Egyptian ar- army, and now there's this testing in the wilderness which we'll talk about today because there's going to be a parallel thing that happens in Matthew. And then you get the provision of manna, manna from heaven, so to speak. Jesus says that he is the manna, true manna from he- heaven. Um, and you're going to have the water from the rock. And, you know, and it goes on and on. You get this battle with Amalek that they right away they're going to do battle with. This, and, and that's significant. And then finally they're going to get to Mount Sinai where Moses is going to go up on the mountain and he's going to meet God. He's going to be on the mountain for 40 days. He's on the mountain 40 days twice. And he's going to get the Ten Commandments and come down. And then the rest of it is a, a focuses on um, their journeys in the wilderness and the, and the whole Aaron and the priesthood and the sacrificial system, the construction, the details of the construction of the temple. And, and that's kind of where Exodus takes you. 
I think some of you are doing a Bible read-through. If you're doing the normal Bible read-through, you start in Genesis, you probably this last week read the first part of Leviticus. I, that is so hard. You're, you've done well. If you've got through, you know, if you got through the first 16 chapters of Leviticus, good, de- good for you, right? You know, I, all the details of, you know, you got the burnt sacrifice, then you have what, the grain offering, and then you have the, the guilt, you know, I don't know, you the peace offering, the guilt, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. You know, I, I still to this day can't quite piece all, what all that means. And, um, but yeah, so, but this, this has meaning, this has weight. By the time you get to Leviticus 16 and 17 and you get to um, the Day of Atonement, some things become a little more clear. But, but you've, you've done well if you've, this week if you've made it through those chapters. So anyway, so that's sort of the broad picture. So if you've read your Old Testament, you should have sort of a broad view of the story of the Exodus. And this is the birth of a nation, Israel. <clears throat> and it's, it's critical to understanding um, the framework of, in the New Testament, hopefully what you'll see today. So um, I, I'm not really a timeline geek, but I, I kind of like to know when things happened. And there are wildly, di- scholars have wildly different timelines for the Exodus. And there's kind of the, the, the early Exodus and the late Exodus. And a lot of it hinges on how you read, um, I think it's Genesis 12:4, where it says that they were in Egypt for 400 years. But if you have a Septuagint, it says they were in Egypt and Canaan for 400 years. So you're like, well, was there slavery? Were they enslaved or in Egypt for 400 years? Or was it all the time from Abraham all the way up to this point were 400 years. I, I take the latter because I think that's the, way God, that's the way the book of Galatians interprets it. And of course, as you remember, God told Abraham it's going to be 430 years before your people are going to come back and they're going to judge the Canaanites because their sin had, is not yet ripe. It's going to take 430 years before their sin is ripe. So last week we talked, just crude numbers, I think of Abraham in about 2,000 years before the cross which I mentioned last week, we have symmetry. We're, we're 2,000 years after the cross. I don't know. I find that interesting. So I usually place the, the Exodus somewhere around, um, you know, 1,400. That's the, kind of the earlier Exodus, 1,500. It could be as late. Some people have as late as 1,200. I don't know. I'm not too much of a scholar. Then you have David about 1,000 B.C. So round numbers, I think, think Abraham, 2,000 B.C. Think Exodus, 15, 1,400 B.C. David, about 1,000 B.C. So... Anyway, I, I like to have place and time for, for these events. So, so there's, a, there's a lot of theology that's happening in the book of Exodus, and we're just going to hit some high points. One, that, one thing that's really important in the book of Exodus is the, the, one of the purposes of Exodus is so God could declare his name. And this is the first time you get this personal name of God, this divine name that's going to be used. Um, but in, in the middle of the plagues, he says, he has Moses say to Pharaoh, he says, for this purpose I have raised you, and you being is Pharaoh in this case, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So somehow through these events, God's name is now going to spread. It's going to be known through all the earth. And you know by the time they enter into the promised land in Joshua's day, and they get to Jericho. Remember, there's this woman named Rahab. She knows the Exodus story. And, it's, and because she knows the Exodus story, she helps the spies. She understands, right? So, so this story has reached the Canaanites. In fact, we know that it had reached 
you know, Balak and other, other people along the way. The story is known. These were the ones that God brought out and uh, he destroyed the Egyptians and they defeated Amalek and, and all the various people along the way. So this is, this is God proclaiming his name on all the earth. Now, in the Gospels, we've been talking about the, the Peter's confession being a key point, especially in the Synoptic Gospels. Before Peter's confession, um, anything that speaks of the cross is, is done in sort of an obscure way. Remember we said Jesus said things like, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rise it up again. It was like, well, that's a really obscure way to talk about his death. But by the time you get to Peter's confession, he's explicit. He says, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and elders. Then he expands a little bit later. I mean, I'm going to be beaten and flogged. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And that's where he says he sets his face towards Jerusalem. That's, that's his mission. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die, but it's explicit. So the game plan is afoot. Everybody knows what's going on, what's happening. Now, Peter sort of objects initially, but then after his great confession, then he becomes the mouthpiece of Satan to try to subvert this. Now Satan knows. Right? Before that point, it's not really clear if, if Satan really knows the game plan, but now there's no doubting the game plan. It's, it's out there. But the disciples still don't understand at that point. But, but that begins with Jesus saying, who do people say that I am? And people say, oh, well, some people say you're John the Baptist or the prophets. But, but then he says, who do you say that I am? And that's an important pivot point in the Gospels because that, everything pivot, it pivots on who Jesus is. If he is who he says he is, all this stuff becomes really important. And so Jesus is there declaring his name. And he is, he is the Messiah. He's the Christ. In other Gospels, it says he is the Son of God in that, in that confession. Right? That's critically important. So there's sort of this parallel between declaring God's name and declaring Jesus' name. And we see Jesus will be kind of the, will be referred to as the new Israel. He's going to be the one that, if you see Jesus, you see God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the exact representation of his being. And, his, and it's his name that's above all names, right? It says in Philippians 2, about, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. So that all ties into the Exodus. So there's this Exodus set up to proclaim God's name, and we get his name. But, but ultimately, the name... No, God the Father's name is important, but, but Jesus is going to be the name that every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess, right? And this is so God will be known. Uh, <clears throat> and this, we well, see this also, another purpose is this further establishes the covenant that he made with Abraham. It says, right, in, in Exodus 2, that I, he, he saw their bondage, he saw them crying out in, in their slavery, and he said, I remembered my covenant I made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Jesus makes a point when he's talking with the Sadducees that there has to be a resurrection, otherwise none of this makes sense. If Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their bodies are long gone by this point. And then all this becomes a move. If there's no resurrection, we're all, we all should be home doing something else, right? Everything is keyed on the resurrection. The fact that these promises were given to Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and to Moses are, are important because there is a resurrection. And think of the judgment of Canaan. Judgment of Canaan was going to be 430 years because their evil was not yet ripe. But you think, well, that's really unfair. That means the first 400 years of people don't even get judged. They just get to die. They just get to be like Pol Pot and they never get to pay, right? Pol Pot just died of a heart attack in a nice bed. Like he never, no. It's, it, there's an implication that there's a judgment. 
there's not just going to be an earthly judgment. There has to be another judgment. If God is the, as, it, as Abraham says in Genesis 18, you are, will not the God of the universe do what is right? So he's the judge. And, and so there, there are implications that the, that the New Testament authors and Jesus himself expects you to sort of gather from this, that there has to be a resurrection for any of this to be worth anything. If there is no resurrection, this just becomes a book that just is going to sit in the back of a library and collect dust. Right? Everything is hinged on the fact that this covenant was with people that are alive. And we get the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is actually talking with Moses and Elijah. So <coughs> it comes real then. So, <coughs> so God reveals himself as the, the great I am statement. Now if you read the Gospel of John, that's where Jesus is, becomes the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Right? He, you, know, you, can't, you can't miss that. And you can't miss that connection that, that, the rep, that revelation, the revealed Christ, makes with this name. Right? He's, he's going to become um, Yahweh, the personal God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And again, he's going to refer to himself as, again in all caps, he's the Lord. He's the one who brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt. He's, he's that God. Now, if you're only going to have one God that you can worship, it's good to know who that God is. I'm that God. I'm that God who defeated all those Egyptian gods that weren't worth anything. Right? So, <clears throat> so he's about to differentiate himself from all these various things, that, these, these uh, pantheon of, of folks that the Egyptians worshipped. <clears throat> so an- another broad thing that you'll understand is the story of redemption. This is the story of a people coming from slavery and being redeemed. So when we read in the New Testament this idea of redemption, it's, it's, the Exodus is the real backdrop. If you want to understand this, this idea of redemption, it con- and we're going to, later, what we're going to talk about the idea of the atonement. We'll save that for a little bit later, later. But what these words mean, I think the, the foundation of the Exodus will give us the real definition that we should use for all these various terms. And, and you read that as you realize that God took a people out of slavery and he redeems them and, and, and he gives them freedom. If, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Right? The story of the Bible is about coming out of slavery and being freedom. Right? I don't know if you talk to a lot of atheists now, especially in, in university campuses. They, they, the big argument is, well, the Bible endorsed slavery. I'm like, did you read it? Did, you re- did just someone just tell you a couple verses out of Exodus 21? But you know the whole story is about people not being enslaved and being free. That's the big picture. You've missed the big picture, right? So, so this is a story about slavery not being good. There's freedom. And Jesus is the one that's going to set people free from the biggest slavery of all, and that's our own sin. Right? And that's the redemption that's talked about in, in the New Testament. So, so we'll, we'll go into that in some detail later when we talk about atonement. All right. So another important thing is you'll find is that Israel is referred to as the firstborn son. Jesus is also, like in Colossians 1, is going to be referred to as the firstborn son. So if you ever try to argue with a Jehovah Witness or someone like that who, who thinks, oh, see, he, Jesus is the firstborn, that means he, he was created being, right? Well, not really. Because <laughs> you'll find the firstborn in the Old Testament is almost never the one that's born first. I mean, it's, you know, like you... There's this great section in Genesis where Jacob is blessing Joseph's children, Manasseh and Ephraim. Remember, he crosses his arm, put his right arm on Ephraim, and puts his left arm on Manasseh, and Joseph's like, no, no, no. But Jacob's, no, this is the way it is. And if you get to, Jer- you get to Jeremiah 30, it calls Manasseh, no, it calls Ephraim the firstborn, 
But it was really Ephraim, and that's the whole business is the idea. The firstborn is the one that is the preeminent one. That's the one that's going to be the rightful heir that's going to happen. You know, so, and so, that, so when Jesus is his firstborn, right, that is saying that he is the rightful heir in Colossians 1. He is the preeminent one. He's the one through all the promises are going to happen. That's the firstborn. And that's the language. And, and Israel is called his firstborn son, and you're going to see Jesus is called the firstborn son. There's something going on here, right? And when we get, to, especially when we get to Isaiah and we talk about Jacob as Israel and we talk about Jesus as Israel, you're, you're going to see there's the one, the one Israel that's blind and then there's the other Israel that opens the eyes of the blind, right? What's going on here? What's the messaging that's going on? But that's, that's another term that's going to repeat itself throughout the whole scriptures, this idea of, the, of being the firstborn or the preeminent. Think of the term as the preeminent one, right? So... So these are kind of big terms that we get out of the Exodus. All right, so let's talk about the, the plagues. So, Israel, so God's revealed himself. Moses has gone back. And now God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, heart, now Pharaoh's already a pretty bad guy. How do we know that Pharaoh's already a pretty bad guy? Yeah, he's, he's, he's trying to drown all the male Hebrew children. Right? I mean, this is... This isn't God taking someone's heart, you know, some good guy and hardening his heart. You know, this is someone is, like a lot of the early church father says, our heart is either like wax or like clay and put into the, when it's put into the sun. If it's like wax, it'll melt. If it's like clay, it'll harden. Pharaoh's is in the hardening case, right? So God is hardening his heart. In fact, God is using him as a chess piece, right? You, you want to defy God? Well, I'll use your defiance for my purposes, and that's exactly what's happening here. And so there's going to be the, these ten plagues. And I'm not, I'm not, so years back we did a thing on the book of Exodus. And we did a whole, we went through all ten plagues. And we went through in detail the specific gods that were being targeted by these various plagues. But you'll note each plague is actually, has a corresponding, actually multiple corresponding gods that you'll find that the Egyptians worshipped. And it's as if God is declaring judgment on the gods of Egypt. He says this explicitly in Exodus 12. So some of these, like you, you know right away, you have the Nile turning to blood. That's the first of these plagues. Now, the Nile was, obviously, if you, look, if you look at a satellite view of Egypt, you can see why this place is populated. Right? You have this delta where it's, where it's green and everything else is brown. That's because this, that, that region flooded, floods annually, and, and that flooding is which makes the land fertile. Right? And because it, because it floods, one of the, when you get frogs, and frogs were a good sign of something that, that, that means it's going to be a good crop. If you've got frogs, that means things are going as they should, and we should have good crops this year. But the, the, but the Nile was worshipped. There are actually, we've uncovered, archaeologists have found hymns to the Nile. Just like we would have a hymn to God, they would have a hymn to the Nile. Because the Nile was the... I think this is Osiris. I think it was the bloodstream of Osiris. In fact, there, 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 are, there are at least half a dozen different gods that are just connected to the Nile specifically. Right? So turning the Nile to blood is very, 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 very significant in this. Right? It's no accident, too, by the time you get to the book of Revelation and you get all the various events in the book of Revelation, you get these things on steroids. You're going to have more stuff turned to blood in the book of Revelation as well. So, so the Bible plays on these themes Quite a bit. They have frogs, and I, didn't, I had another picture of one of the gods that had a head of a frog. If you look enough at hieroglyphics, you'll find little gods with frog heads. So frogs were something that worshipped. I think a lot to do with the uh, fertility of frogs being where the, the water that would 
inundate the land so they could have their crops. You know, um, so some so some authors think the lice. So so the Egyptians had lots of purification routines that they went through. Um, they would shave their heads and everything, and they were, and they would be you know cleansing everything was really important to them. And have, they didn't like to associate with the Hebrew. The Hebrews were the dirty people that worked with animals, right? They, 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 you know, it was an, as as it says in the Bible, it says it was an abomination, right? So for them to even eat with the Egyptian with the with the Hebrews. Right, so so lice are sort of attacking their purification rituals. That's what was one kind of theory. And when you get the flies, you think flies. Surely they didn't worship a fly. Well, you, archaeologists find little gold flies, little amulets that people wore were little golden flies. Why you worship a fly? I'm not really sure, but that's another aspect of some sort of god. Right, worship of bulls. This is very common. Right, even the Israelites make this mistake of making a golden calf. Right? And, and, of course, this is all the way to today. Right? If you go to places in the world, they, they still worship livestock and cattle and stuff. Right? Dare I say, even our Wall Street has a big bull in front of it. Right? You know, do what you want with that. Right? This, is, this is a God that's, that's going to be dealt with. Um, the boils. The boils are going to go beyond everybody's um, body. Go on and on. You know, hail and locusts. These, these are good in God's playbook. This is one that he likes to reuse again and again with hail and locusts. You'll find. In Job, he talks about the fact that God has put these handles on the earth so he can grab it and shake it. But then he also talks about the fact that he has this storehouse of hail and he has locusts and, and they're, going, they're, they're common elements of God's judgment. If you read the book of Joel... You know, it opens with this army of locusts which sort of morph into this, you know, other kind of army. And then and by the time you get to, like, the, 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 the bowls in Revelation, you've got locusts on steroids, right, with these crazy demonic locusts that are going on. But that's, right. And then the plague and darkness. And you had the sun god. That's something. Ra was the sun god. That was one of the gods, right? You worship the god. The sun's important. Well, bringing darkness shows God's superiority over, the, over Ra, right? And then finally, the death of the firstborn, the, death of the, the, the pharaohs themselves were gods to the, in their eyes, and their children were gods, you know, much like the North Korean leader. Right? They're, they're the gods, and their children are gods. And <clears throat> so this obviously was a strike at that. And of course, there's a, there's, there's a recompense here. God says, you kill my firstborn, I kill your firstborn. Right? That's kind of, and this is where the Passover is going to be born out of. So, so the, the, the thrust here you see is God is separating and making a name for himself and differentiating and showing his superiority over all these other gods that we worship as well, right? Things that, that God is superior to. And so that's, that's kind of the one big, big message you see. Does this make sense? Right? So this is... There's been large books just written on this subject. It's pretty fascinating if you get into Egyptology and all the crazy stuff they worshipped. And, uh, and, so, and, of course, that's the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. And he's differentiating himself. Look, these, And so people argue, were these real gods or were they false gods? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Right? So um, we can talk about that at some point. But, but in some of these cases, there's... there's oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Right, you, and especially you get a Canaanite god, you get to Dagon and and all the Baals and <coughs> and uh, uh, what's what's the other way? I can't remember all the names of various gods, but they're what's that? Moloch? Yeah, Moloch. You know, people. Yes. So so yes, I I definitely believe there is a real there are very real spiritual entities behind those. Um, 
especially when you get up in the Bashan region where you have all that evil. That's, you know, that's where even Israelites, Dan, put up an altar to the, had one of his golden calves up in Dan. Interestingly enough, Jesus is born right on the edge of that, of Bashan. I don't think that's an accident. Jesus says a light, there's a light in a dark place. Jesus was born on the edge of ups, absolute darkness. Some of the worst demonic activity is in that area over in Bashan. Remember, that's kind of where the demonic was from on the other side of, um, of Galilee, or, or no, the other side of um, the lake up there, yeah, Galilee. So, um, and we'll even when we look at Psalm 22, David in that psalm says, bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. From Jesus' birth to his death, he's had to deal with these gods. And we're going to find that he's the one who's going to defeat that god. He's greater than, than those bulls of Bashan. But they're going, to, they're going to haunt him from beginning to end. And of course, I think that's where Mount Hermon is, where he says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think that's up on Mount Hermon, up in this area. God's, God's making a proclamation. My church, he's planting the flag on the enemy's territory. Right? This is my church, and you're not going to prevail against it. Second Temple literature, that's where the gates of hell were, you know, according to the traditions of Second Temple literature. That's, and, that's where, and, and the New Testament authors knew that, right? And this is where Christ, Christ knew that, and that's where he's planting his flag, up in that area. And he's... And if you understand the backdrop of these things, you'll understand what, God, what Jesus is doing, right? I am the God above all other gods, and I declare victory over you. And where does he declare victory? At the cross, right? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's, that's sort of the picture so far. <clears throat> um, so now we get to the Gospels. So we've got 20 minutes. Let's, I'm going to camp mainly in Matthew. So if you turn to Matthew, we've already alluded to this to some degree. I'm going to turn to Matthew 2. We've already talked a little bit about Matthew. This, now, he's the most Jewish of all the gospel writers, at least of the synoptic gospels. And he's making a very strong case that Jesus is the Messiah. And so in Matthew chapter 1, you have this business that he's the son of David, and he, and he makes the genealogies fit with the number of David. <clears throat> you got Christ's birth, and then when you get to verse 13, this is chapter 2, and it says, Now when they had gone, he said, the Magi had left, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. By the way, this angel of the Lord can't be Jesus. Why can't it be Jesus? Yeah, he's, he, <laughs> unless, yeah. I suppose in some weird way, I don't understand it, but it's not. It's, so this, we know in other places this could be Gabriel, but who knows? Anyways, moot point here. Appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, so he's with Mary, and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill them. This is a little bit of echoes of early part of, of the book of Exodus. So Exodus is, you're going to have the killing of the infants there. So... So maybe that's a little bit shadowy, but Matthew's going to leave no doubt on what he's going to do here. He says, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. And he stayed there until the death of Herod. This happened. Now, this is, this is wild what Matthew does here. He says, this happened so that what has been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, that's a quote of Hosea 11.1. 1. If you go back, you know, Hosea is the prophet to the northern kingdom that, 
that was going to go into exile. And, and if you read that section, that's a story about Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, right? This is, this is God's firstborn son, Israel, coming out of Egypt. And it's talking about what knuckleheads they are, right? They, they constantly were forsaking God. They were, you know, all their sacrifices became an abomination, you know. But it, and you're thinking, like, what is Matthew doing? What does that have anything to do with the, the fact that Mary and Joseph happened to go to Egypt to flee Herod? Like, that seems like... And some commentators pun on this. They, they miss it. But this is the setup that Matthew's giving us. Matthew knows exactly what he's doing. He is now going to create a parallel between the life of Christ and the life of the Exodus. So there's something God can do that no one else can do. He can take history and make it metaphor. He can take history and make it allegory. And, you know, we can write stories and write allegories, but God can actually rewrite history to become an allegory in and of itself. So the, the whole story of the Exodus and the events of the Exodus is Matthew is going to see, you're going to see Jesus' life. He's constantly going to be referencing things back to the Exodus and show you that there's, there's a parallel between Jesus and the Exodus, right? And so here's one of those just right out of the chute. Right? He's, he's comparing the fleeing to Egypt and coming back to the fleeing that Israel, or, you know, Israel coming out of Egypt. In that, so, so right out of the chute. So, so what are some of the other events that we have? And I, I have a lot more to say than what's in my notes, but let's, let's walk through this. Right? So we've got Herod's slaughter of the babies and the whole, that, that whole thing going on, which sort of mimics what happened with Moses right, when he was born. And then you, 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 have, you have John the Baptist... And then, and then at the end of Matthew 3, you have the baptism of Christ. Right? So if, if you sort of take the parallel here that Matthew's doing, is, is if you read 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's talking about Israel being baptized into Moses. So there's this baptism of Moses. And if you, so the understanding is there is that, that trial of going through the Red Sea and the Red Sea parting and getting through to the other side. You are now... You are now the Israelite. You've, you've gone through the baptism of Moses. You've passed through. Right? Peter does the same thing with Noah's Ark. Right? The, Noah's Ark, the baptism that happens at, at Noah's Ark. You, you now have a new creation, a new people. You've been baptized there. So, <clears throat> by the way, an interesting note is in those baptisms, it's the people that don't get wet that get saved. But yeah. Just side note. But, but, so you have this baptism of Christ. And um, <clears throat> this, as Jesus comes up after his baptism... Now, of course, John the Baptist is like, what am I doing baptizing you? Like, this makes no sense to John the Baptist. Like, it makes no sense for me to be baptizing you. But what does Jesus say? Why is, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus knows the game. He knows what's happening, right? There's a pattern that he must fulfill. He intentionally is doing things to match the pattern that's been set before him. So that's his, oh boy, we lost the connection again. So that's, that's the pattern. Well, I'll just, I'll leave it off for the moment. So that's what you see at Christ's baptism. And so, so you have this, when we think of Paul calls this baptism of Moses, now you've got Christ's baptism. It says, after he was baptized, Jesus come, came immediately out of the water. And behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and settling on him. And behold, the voice from the heavens said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So a lot of the elements that you have with the water and the baptism are elements that you have elsewhere in Scripture. There's another, pers- another person there, the Spirit. 
Right? If you go, even go back to Genesis 1, in the waters you had the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep. So, as you know, the word, the word for spirit, both in Hebrew and Greek, is, is the word for wind. Right? This is the wind. And, so, and what do you have in the Red Sea? How does the Red Sea get parted? It's a wind. An east wind blows, right? And it, and it says it brings up walls of water. You've all seen the Ten Commandments with, with uh, um, Charlton Heston, right? Where that, those, that's awesome, the walls of water that are... <clears throat> Mark and I were out at a restaurant and they had on the TV Ben-Hur. We happened to sit down right at the point where Jesus is, is with the um, woman caught in adultery. I thought, wow, that's cool that they would show that on, on a restaurant TV. But anyway... So you have the Spirit of God there in this, in this water, and, and Jesus is coming out. And, and there's, now there's a lot going on with Christ's baptism here. This idea of fulfilling all righteousness. It, it's certainly not because God needs to be forgiven of any kind of sin. That's not what's happening here. The, the fact is there's a bigger picture being played. Jesus is the, is the new exodus, and this is, this is the um, water that's, that he's coming up out of. And we have the children of Israel and their baptism and the water they're coming out of. Same with Noah going through the ark. And this, there's, a, there's, a, there's something new. There's a new creation that's coming. When we're baptized, there's a new person that's coming out. There's, a, there's something new happening. And now Jesus' ministry is going to begin. How does Jesus' ministry begin? What's the very first thing? Yeah. When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, then Jesus led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, right? So, I tend to, I tend to think like the Spirit's supposed to be a comforting thing that tells me good things. No, but sometimes the Spirit will drive you to the place you don't want to go. But Jesus goes there. He's in the wilderness. How does that sound like the Exodus? What happened right after they passed through the Red Sea? How long are the children of Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. They could have been shorter, but they were there for 40 years. How long is Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days, right? And he's being tempted. He's on the 40 and Noah's Ark. I mean, there's 40 all over the place, right? So 40 is significant, even going back to the split up of the age of Moses in these 40 period time periods, right? 40 is all over the place. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus is out in the wilderness for 40 days. He's there tempted by Satan. Remember last week we talked about test versus tempt, right? Test God tests but doesn't tempt. Satan tempts. But sometimes God uses Satan to do the testing. So there's sort of this interplay. So that's exactly what you're having here. And when the children were in the, in the wilderness, right? If you, there's a vast army of people out in the desert. There's a problem. You've got to feed them. Right? So they're being tested. How did, how did the children of Israel respond to that? They did not pass the test, right? They grumbled. Yet, they do get manna from heaven. They do get the quail and the meat. They do get water. I mean, all these things are practical things if you're going to survive in the desert. But now you get Jesus. He's also going to be tempted. There's going to be three temptations. His quotes are all from Deuteronomy, and they're all part of the Exodus event. Right? Every one of them. And, and I think they actually correspond to the same sorts of things. One of the first things the children of Israel worried about is food. Right? How are you going to eat? You know, Jesus is fasting. So, what's the, what's the first temptation? The first temptation is, right? Hey, Jesus, there's a rock. You could turn that into bread and eat that. Right? Jesus, Jesus then quotes, you know, you know, there's man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God, which is a quote from the wilderness experience in Deuteronomy. 
So Jesus is, is quoting um, the, the events of the Exodus here. And, of course, he's going to make this really clear in John. He's going to say he is the bread that came out of heaven. I mean, he is the living bread. Right? You can't miss that. Right? Then you get the next, next, next temptation is, you know, this idea of, of the devil warping Psalm 91, which is a very fascinating um, uh, psalm. If, if, um, if you hear... I like to listen to a guy named Michael Heiser on, on his Naked Bible, and he has a thing. He has several things on Psalm 91 that are just fascinating, and and um, <clears throat> but that's what Satan is using here. But and he says, you know, if you if you jump off the, or in this case, yeah, if you throw your if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give angels orders concerning you, and on, and on their hands they will lift that, that you up so that you do not strike your foot against a stone, right? He's sort of selective a piece out of Psalm 9. Satan's using scripture. Um, of course, Jesus knows the scripture. He is the living scripture. He says, on the other hand is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What did the Israelites do with God? They tested God, right? In the wilderness at Meribah. Right? That was and, and that was something you don't do. That's that's anti-faith. When you put God to the test, that's that's the opposite of, of how you're supposed to deal with God. Right? And then you have this business of all the kingdoms of the world and and, and God being tempted with that. And and, and I, I always look at that as a bona fide offer. Right now, Satan is the one who owns those kingdoms, but not in the long run. Jesus is the heir. Someday he's gonna get what's rightfully his, but not this way. This is not how Jesus is going to get get those things. He's he's going to he's going to get it another way. So um, it's going to involve a cross. And and um, this is what we talked about. Michael Heiser makes a big deal about Satan's trying to figure out the game plan at this point. He's trying to figure out can I kill Jesus? Is that something is that even on the table? Right. That's what. This don't take this with a grain of salt. I, I, you know this is kind of going beyond what it says. But but there's this idea by the, this is this is before Peter's confession. Satan really is sort of trying to figure out what's happened. It's not until Peter's confession. That, okay, we know, we know what the plan is here, right? So you have the temptation in the wilderness, right? And then the next thing you have is the Sermon on the Mount. What does God do? What does Jesus do on the Sermon on the Mount? What are some of the things he says? And first, you're on a mountain. What's that remind you of in the Exodus? Where did the Ten Commandments, what mountain did those? You're on Sinai, right? You had God delivering the Ten Commandments on Sinai, and you have all the whole business with fire, and it's on a mountain, right? You can't miss this. Here you got Jesus on a mountain, and he's exposing Moses' law. And he, in fact, he even says in this section, he says, <clears throat> you know, not one bit of the law is passed away. I've come to fulfill the law. And that doesn't mean that he's going to live a perfect, he is perfect, he's never going to sin. That's not the point. The point is, is the bigger point is all these things that Moses wrote about are now coming to life in him. He is the reality. You want a Sabbath, right? I am the Sabbath, right? You know, I, I can teach you to observe the Sabbath, but you really want to observe the Sabbath? Come to me. I'm the one that's going to give you rest. I'm the real Sabbath, right? That kind of thing. And that's, and that's what you see in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's going to take the Sermon on the Mount and make sure that everyone realizes where they stand before God as guilty, right? Even murder, right? Even if you've said something bad about somebody, you've had murder in your heart and you're going to be guilty, you know? So this, so this is God. This is Jesus. Now, he's giving commands. He's saying, my commands, right? He's, as you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, for a tooth for a tooth, for a tooth for a tooth. But I say, you know, turn the other cheek, you know, those kinds of things, right? It's, it's different. Jesus is... I, 
uttering commands as if he, they're his commands. And John treats it that way, and Matthew treats it that way. This is Jesus uttering commands, because really, that's who's giving the commands to Moses. Right? So, there you have, so there you have the Sermon on, on the Mount. You also have things like the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. What does that sound like out of the Exodus? Manna, right? And, 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 right. So you have all, yeah, you have the fish and the bread and all that stuff that you have in there is is, and John is going to make this explicit because Christ says he is the true manna that comes out of heaven. Right? They're coming because they want to get fed. But if you really want to get fed, come to me. I am the true manna. If you want water, he says the woman at the well. If you want water, come to me. I. This is the real water. Right? So all the elements of the Exodus are being picked up by Matthew, and he's, pain, he's painting this. And if you understand the Exodus, there's no accent in the parallel. And so, so you begin to see these things. Oh, yeah. So you begin to start seeing the Exodus. And, of course, it becomes extremely explicit when you get to the Lord's Supper, which we're going to talk about next week, because you're dealing into the Passover event and the events of the Passover and when Christ, the whole selection of the Lamb in Exodus 12, the events of Passion Week, is mirroring what's happening in the Exodus. And, of course, Jesus is the one who's going to be the, the true Exodus. He's going to be the one that, um, that does that. Now, let me, show, let, me, let me end with one thing here that I think is fascinating. If you turn to Luke's account, which I believe is in Luke 9. Yeah, Luke 9. This is going to the Transfiguration. You're going to find, the trans, you're going to find Peter's confession and the Transfiguration in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You won't find it in John. John cited, well, that's already been covered. But Luke chapter 9, what's that? So in Luke Luke chapter 9, this is really fascinating. Let's see, I'm going to pick up where I want. So in verse 28, it says, About eight days after after these sayings, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So now we've got another mountain. Now this is not Sinai here. This, we... Michael Heiser would say, the Bible doesn't say what mountain explicitly it is. Michael Heiser would say this is Mount Hermon, and he has his reasons. This is the same place where the confession took place. But he's up on a mountain, and he went up on a mountain to pray. But if, if you've read Exodus 24, you're going to see the, the, the same things. Moses is up on a mountain, right? In fact, this gets pretty obvious. He says, <clears throat> as he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and, he, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. So Jesus is being transfigured. He's up on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. It's starting to become kind of obvious, right? Now you're on a mountain, and there's Moses and there's Elijah. Now what's fascinating, he says, who appearing in glory were speaking of his, and my translation says departure, right? which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But this is a Greek word. This is a Greek word. You can fake Greek if you don't know Greek, if you just know the alphabet, right? It's like Epsilon, Chi, you know, uh, Omicron, Delta, Omicron, Sigma. Or something. You, know, you, you can fake it, right? You, you know, this is Exodus. This is the word Exodus, right? Did you know your English Bible, the title of the word Exodus is not from the Hebrew. That's from the Greek version of the Bible. It's ex, it's, that's, this, is, this is the same word that we use in our English Bible is actually from the Greek. Hebrew, the name for the book is, they usually just, it, Hebrew, they just take the first few letters of Exodus, and that becomes the, the, the name of, of Exodus, and I can't remember what, whatever the first few words. Yeah, which means 
The names, that's right. So, so the Hebrew, in a Hebrew canon, the name of the Exodus is the names, right? In, in our English, we get it from the Septuagint, is the Exodus. Well, Jesus is talking with Moses. That's kind of a first clue. And they're talking about his Exodus, which he has to accomplish in Jerusalem. Well, we already know. He's already said what he's going to Jerusalem to do. He's going there to die. So he's, going, he's talking about his departure. Now, of course, he's going to rise again. He's going to ascend. There's that kind of departure going on. But the real event, the main event, is happening at his crucifixion where he's headed. He's talking with Moses about the departure that he's... Right? And it's actually in Luke's version here, it actually uses that word exodus, if you, you know, which I think is fascinating. Who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. His face is towards Jerusalem. He's going there to suffer and die. And that's his exodus. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men were standing with him. And as these two men were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, is Peter again opening his mouth, being kind of a little bit of a knucklehead, he says, it is good that we are here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying, as Peter does. <clears throat> but while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Right? So the cloud comes down, it lifts up and there's just Jesus. There's a big difference between Jesus and Elijah and Jesus and Moses. Right? As Hebrews is going to make a big argument. Jesus is the one you are to listen to. Right? Deuteronomy 18, the prophet. He is the one that is going to listen to you. Exodus 23, I'm going to send you my angel and you better listen to him. This is the angel of the Lord. This is the same one in the burning bush. I'm, I'm going to send him. You listen to him. And if you don't, you're in trouble. Right? This is the one you listen. We've already heard this voice at Christ's baptism. Right? Now we get it again at the Mount of Transfiguration. So this, this, is, this is God speaking. And, if you, and we're out of time, but if you just go read the, the last paragraph of Exodus 24, all the same elements. You've got a mountain, right? You're, and there you're on Sinai. So it's a different mountain. You've got the clouds. You've got the transfiguration of Moses' face was shining from then on, right? You, you, even earlier, you've got the three people. You've got Peter, James, and John here. There you've got, you've got initially Aaron and whatever his two sons are, Abadu and Nadab, Nadab right? They, they come, you know, so there's all these parallels that are happening as well. And it becomes very obvious with the mountain, the cloud, and, and, you know, and, and, and all these things. And so anyway, so, this, so there, at least in the Gospel of Luke, that, that there's no way that if you understood that, events of Exodus 24 and 23 that you would, you would mistake what's happening here, right? And it's pointing to who Jesus is, right? He is the one to listen to. He is, he is the Son of God. And all this from the Exodus. So when the Gideons give you a New Testament, ask for the whole thing, right? Otherwise, it's going to be kind of hangs in thin air without understanding this backdrop. All right. So that's, we went through at, at a Rapid pace, but this is kind of the broad picture that we've painted so far. And we've left out the Passover because I knew there's no way I'd get to it today. So we'll do that one next. Any, any big questions? Little questions. Oh, the, the baptism with Moses? Right. So, so yeah, well, let's turn to that. So let me explain it. Why don't we let Paul explain it? It is 1 Corinthians 10, or is it? Did I get that right? Did I have that right? Which. As you know, Paul uses the Exodus. Yes. 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. What's, he re- what's Paul referring to? The Exodus, right? They, they had the cloud by day and the fire by night and they were all under the cloud and, and, and there's the sea and through the sea, he's talking about the Red Sea, right? And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, right? This was the idea they, that as, as an Israelite, this was your Exodus. You're going to pass through that water and you're going to get to the other side. You're now, you're now identified with the God of Moses and the Egyptian army is going to be wiped out. Right? That's, your, that's the identification. That's, that's what I say to the baptism of Moses. And then he goes on, and they ate the same spiritual food, the manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. So you think, I'm, if I'm weird with my typology, how weird is Paul? He's saying that rock was Jesus. Like, okay. Nevertheless, with most of, God, of them, God was not pleased, for their dead bodies were spread out in the wilderness, right? They didn't pass the test, right? Everyone 20 years and older didn't get to enter in the promised land. Not even Moses got to enter the promised land, because he struck the rock twice, right? All these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they did crave them, and, and do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and arose up to play. That's going back to the Aaron and the golden calf. Nor do we commit sexual sin, sexual immorality, as some of them did, or, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor do we put the Lord to the test, as some of them did, they, and were killed by snakes, bronze serpent, think of that in numbers. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as, as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Right? So that's telling a story as an example but the real example is in Jesus, right? That's the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and through Jesus is, is the real event. But, but there's a type there. So there's a baptism into Moses. They've entered into Moses. You've gone through the Red Sea. You are now an Israelite, right? If you've been baptized here by, as a Christian, you are now, you're now identified with Jesus, right? There's a new life. Just like Noah going through the, through the water and coming out in dry land with the ark, he was, right? As Peter says, that was a baptism, right? There's this idea of, um, <clears throat> we even use the term baptism by fire. You've gone through something and that's made you something new, right? You've, you've, passed, you've gone through the test. You've gone through a really hard test if you've been baptized, right? There's a baptism of fire and the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist talks about. So here's the baptism. Moses is, all these things flow together, these baptisms, right? So, and that's, that's so... Think baptism in the sort of general sense of the word, not the specific. And I have no time for this. We're way over time. I was going to talk about Nicodemus in John 3 and this idea of being born of, you know, got to be born both of the water and, uh, you know, you got to be born again. You're going to be born both of, wa- of, of water and of the blood, right? So there's an exodus thing that's going on there. And it becomes really clear because that's happening at Passover. And the end, the end just before John 3.16, he's bringing up the whole bronze serpent event again. But we're out of time, so we can't do that. So maybe I'll mention that another time. But anyway, so that's the picture. So hopefully, if nothing else, that you start to see these things as you, as you go through and you read Scripture. So does that make sense? Good. Anyway, I'm sorry. I feel like drinking from a fire hose a little bit. But, but anyway. All right. Good enough. I'll, I'll close in prayer. Lord... Help us to see these things, and Lord, we long to see you day to day. Someday we're going to see you face to face, and we won't see in part, and we'll know you, and we'll see you as you are, and we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.